You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. You can also find one under a seat around you. Um, and of course, as always, if you don't own that, you can take it as a gift from us. So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. So um, when you guys get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. It still continues, okay, until December is over. So, amen. Uh, like Lauren was saying, uh, you know, we're concluding a sermon series today, the most wonderful time of the year. We've been talking about the Christmas story and why we should not be ashamed to celebrate what we are celebrating during the time of Christmas. It's a great time to reflect on who Christ is for us and what he's come to do. And so today we're going to be ending that series, uh, not with a traditional Christmas text, but just want to kind of maybe reorient us to where we are. So we've been talking about, you know, this, you know, really the story of Christmas is the children of God, the people of Israel, this long awaited moment that the Messiah, right, that the King was going to come, was going to be born in Bethlehem and he was going to come and he was going to rescue his people, right? This is This has been this tension in the Bible, this waiting, this longing, right? This advent for the coming of Christ. And then we get to Christmas and Christ comes, right? Doesn't come in the way you expect or the way many would expect, but he comes nonetheless in a humble form as a human, right? The God man, what we've been discussing. Uh, And then now, you know, we're kind of in this tension where Christ has come. He has rescued his people, right? He has made a way through the cross, through the resurrection for his people to be saved forever and ever and ever. And now we're in this tension where we are waiting for the return of Christ again, right? Where this time, instead of coming as a humble baby, he will come as the God-man with a sword drawn on a white horse, right? And he's coming to end all things and bring us to his kingdom. And we long for that day when Christ will judge the earth and we will be forever with him. So we are now in the middle of this tension. They call it the already not yet, right? Where we are, you know, we've, we've seen the promise of Jesus come. We've tasted the glory, the love of Christ in the gospel. And now we so long for the day that Christ will make all things new. So what do we do in the meantime besides just long for Christ to return? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So you kind of know where we're going from the text. We're going to talk about uh, what it means uh, to, to be missional what it means that that Jesus said to go and make disciples of all the nations. And one thing I want to mention before we pray and get into the text is, you know, around this topic, I don't want to spend too much time here, but around the topic of of missions and evangelism and sharing the gospel, uh, there tends to be some awkwardness. And, And here's a few ways I see that play out. One is in the way where it kind of feels driven by guilt, right? 
Now, I don't want to take anything away. The Great Commission, which is the text we're referring to right now, is a command from the Lord, and it must be obeyed by His people. There's no other way around that. But it's so much more than just a command that needs to be obeyed. It's a calling into something greater. But often, when we are faced with that, maybe it's, a, you know, guy gets up here in the pulpit and just yells at you for nuts, just not, you know, being a good evangelist, you know, you're not witnessing enough. And so by and large, we leave these sermons feeling kind of deflated. We feel kind of guilty that we should be doing something, but usually aren't giving any clear direction on what to do. It's usually like, well, I just know you're not doing it. That's kind of the conclusion you come to. And so you leave just kind of feeling guilty, and that really doesn't lead to any action. Or, or maybe on the opposite end, you, you hear a sermon like this, and maybe there's too many punches that are pulled, and maybe you just kind of leave feeling like, well, it's fine. I'm just, I don't have to really do anything. I'm just, I'm just here to live this life and try to be faithful as I can, you know, uh, make sure my kids aren't like me and that's probably good enough for this life, right? And so there's kind of awkward tension around it and amen. And all I want to say is that my, my prayer is not to lift any unnecessary burden you should feel, but also not to place any unnecessary burden that you shouldn't feel. And so I just pray that as you look, not only just the command that Christ gives us, but the promises surrounding that command, which are amazing. So I want to focus more today on the why, not just the what. We're going to talk about the what. We're going to break this down a little bit. What does it mean to make disciples? But by and large, I want to focus on the why. I want to focus on what is Christ promising us in the midst of this command as King Jesus, ruler of the universe, sending us out as his ambassadors. What is he promising us? So that's where we're going to kind of focus today because the cure for your guilt and the cure for your apathy are based in those promises surrounding the command. So let's look to those together. Let's pray. I'm going to pray and hop in the text. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. We know for a fact that it is not our love for you, which wanes often, that keeps us with you, but rather it's your love for us, it's your care for us, it's your um, joy in rescuing us and bringing us to your kingdom to be your children, your ambassadors. And so God, I just pray this morning that you would help the gospel to be real. God, would it be fresh for us? Would it be a joy for us this morning that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to our inheritance which never perishes God, let us believe that and grasp that today as we look to your words, King Jesus, that you've given your people. May we feel great joy in receiving them. May we feel the call to go and make disciples of the nations. May we feel the joy of one sinner repenting and coming to you. May you not let us be motivated by guilt and shame. May you keep us from apathy. God, we just want to be faithful. We want to be faithful and we want to experience your joy. So help us to do that this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there's three major points and they they almost break evenly for 18, 19, and 20. Okay, that we're going to go through. And this is what they're going to be summed as. uh, The claim, the charge, and the comfort that Christ gives us. Okay, and with those, I want to give us also a statement of belief. I think it's important as we're talking about this that we talk about what we believe. Once again, we're focusing on the why, not just the what of Jesus. And so basically, verse 16, 17 opens the scene. Jesus had just died. He was crucified, dead, and buried according to the scriptures. And then according to the scriptures, he 
arose from the dead, right? He was victorious over sin, death, hell, the grave. He freely laid his life down like he promised, and then he brought it back up again on the third day. And after the resurrection, he, he's appearing to his uh, apostles, his disciples, even at one point to 500 people at one time. And then Christ, at some point, tells his apostles, meet me at this certain mountain. And it could have been where there he was transfigured. It could have been any place. We don't get that information here, unfortunately. But he says, meet me on the mountain. So they go and to meet him. They're being faithful to what he commanded. And it says, as they got there, they, they saw him. Some were worshipful. Some were doubting. And then Christ steps into the scene with this. And the first thing is his claim. So let's read it together in verse 18. Just, there we go. Verse 18. I was in Second Chronicles somehow. Here's what it says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's stop right there. So the first is the claim. And what I want to say about that is we believe that Jesus has all authority. We believe that Jesus has all authority. This is the claim that he makes is that he has all authority. So we need to talk about what this means. Jesus is about to tell his disciples in the next verse to go into all the world, every nation, every people group, and to make disciples, which is going to include calling them to repentance and to follow the God of the universe, right? And so for someone to make that claim, because you got to remember, if any reading of just in the book of Acts alone and then all of church history, that there are many nations and many peoples that don't want that to happen, that actually have laws against that happening, and that will kill you if you try to do it. So for Jesus to give this claim, he's going to have some type of authority, right? This is important. It can't be just, just somebody randomly saying this, right? It's got to be someone with authority. And we got to remember too, Christ has always had authority. He's always had all the authority, right? Christ never lost that authority. He's always been the God of the universe. That is who Jesus Christ is. He is very God of very God, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And so it's not like he, you know, just lost that authority somehow. But really what this is a picture of when he says, all authority has been given to me by the Father, right, in heaven and on earth, is remember, God allowed for a season for Satan and demons to take over some authority on this earth, right? And so Jesus, being the perfect God-man, conquering death and sin, has now come back and has taken his claim of the throne. It is his. All authority has been given to him. All authority. Now, Matthew has been intricately weaving this theme all throughout the book. From chapter 1, where he goes through the genealogy of Jesus, where he shows that Jesus comes from the royal lineage of David, right? He is the rightful king of his people, all the way to Matthew 28, where we get this claim that Jesus has all authority. Matthew's been weaving this theme all throughout. And this happens in all the Gospels, but I just want to focus specifically on Matthew since we're in that book. Here's just a few examples that Matthew gives us to show us that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. One is Matthew teaches us that Jesus is Lord over nature, right? Jesus is in control of all of the physical world. Let's give a few examples. He calmed the raging sea by just talking to it, right? He said, be still, and it was. It was this dire storm. The, the, um, his disciples were afraid, and he calmed it. This happened in Matthew 8, 20-27. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with, with two fish and five loaves of bread, right? And then he does that again to another 4,000 plus women and children. And he just kind of multiplies it and makes it happen, right? He's got control over what he's doing. That happens in both uh, chapter 14 and 15. 
Jesus also walks on water in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, right? That's pretty unbelievable. He just controls the elements. You can't do that. I know you've all tried as a kid in the pool to walk on the water. No matter how fast you run, you can't do it. Now, I know there's like a lizard out there that can do that, but that's, that's a different conversation for a different day, okay? The point is, is that he's in control of it all, all of nature. Every storm, you name it, it's in his hands. Next thing is Matthew shows us that Jesus is Lord over disease. So let's just walk through a few things. Jesus heals the blind in chapter 9. He heals the mute in chapter 9. He heals the lame, the lepers, the paralytics, the epileptics in chapter 4 and in chapter 15. Jesus has control over all sickness, all illness, all disease. He has control over all cancer. He has control over all things fatal, all things not fatal. He has control over COVID. It doesn't matter. All things obey his will. He has absolute authority and control over it all. Matthew shows that Jesus is Lord over demonic forces, right? Every time Jesus steps on the scene and there's someone possessed by a demon, they come running and screaming and begging Christ not to destroy them just yet because the time has not quite come. Yet he casts out demons. We see this in chapter 4. He heals two men that were just completely obsessed by a legion, cohorts and cohorts of demons they were possessed by in the graveyard. And Jesus, in a word, delivers them into pigs and they die. The demons obey and they are cast out. This happens in chapter 8. So all the demonic forces, doesn't matter. Jesus is in control of it all. Let's continue. Jesus is Lord over sin. Jesus in chapter 9 heals a paralytic and he says just to prove that he can say your sins are forgiven. That's why he heals him. But he has the ability to forgive sins. He proves this also on the cross by dying and resurrecting, right? That he has authority over sin. Jesus is Lord over death. He says in Matthew that the sparrow does not die without the Lord's doing. Chapter 10, he shows us this by the empty tomb in chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, that Jesus rose from the dead. It was a highly guarded tomb. The Roman guards were paid some sweet money to guard the tomb so that nothing sketchy could happen. And nonetheless, he resurrects and he walks out of the tomb freely, right? He's in control over death. Jesus is Lord over the nations. We see this from the text we're in right now. Jesus is Lord over final judgment. We see that in chapter 25. He has all authority and time would fail me to consider the fact that Jesus is over governments. He's over every single molecule, whether that's the biggest star in our planetary system or whether that's the smallest dust mote, as Spurgeon says, he's in control of it all. It all obeys his will. He sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. This is who our Lord Jesus Christ is. This is no small claim. This isn't a uh, you know, simile when he says, I have all authority. He is the God of the universe. So Jesus is not merely a savior that we accept into our hearts, but he's the king of the universe. That's who Jesus is claiming to be right here, okay? This is a big deal. So how then does this authority help us complete the task? Like what encouragement can we gain from this? Like that's a pretty crazy claim, but what can we gain? And I got two ways, two major ways, and we could name a lot more, but I'm just going to name two of them. One is that his authority compels us to advance the kingdom. Here's what I mean by that, is that is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world not worthy of all the worship of all the world? Is he not? He deserves all worship from every living creature in the universe. Jesus does. So this compels us because the lamb deserves the full reward of his suffering. It compels us to go into the world and to bid everyone to repent and to come to Christ because he has all authority. He is the worthy one. 
And number two, his authority gives us confidence to advance the kingdom. It doesn't compel us to do it, but it gives us confidence. Like, if he was not in control of the universe, if Christ did not have authority, what confidence would we have? Would it be our own persuasive abilities? Would it be that in somehow some random circumstance, like things are just going to work out? No, we have confidence because Christ is in control. No one, no one, no thing can truly hinder the gospel going forward and God's people coming in to the fold. Nothing can hinder it. Nothing. That's why the Bible says if Christ is for us, who could be against us, right? If he's for us, if he's with us, if he's here, if he has the authority and he's commanded us to do it, it is going to happen. This is why Jesus says, I will lose no one that my father gives me, right? Every single one of his children will come into the kingdom. Therefore, we have confidence to go. We are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. We're not ashamed to go. We have confidence that he's with us. This is important. Christ will rescue his people. He will do it. Whether we participate or not, whether we're eloquent or not, whether you know we got all the right missional strategies or not, it does not matter. He will do it. But he will also use us to do it. This is pretty amazing. So this is the claim that he has all authority. And we should be very deeply encouraged. So we believe that Jesus has all authority. That's why we go. Now, let's talk about the charge he gives so we believe that Jesus called us to disciple the nations. Let's look at verse 19 in the first half of 20. Here's what it says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, referring to his authority, go therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So let's stop there. So who is this charge for? This is a good question. The charge is go therefore, since I have all authority, In light of that, go make disciples of every single nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey or observe everything that I have commanded. He says to go and to do that. Now, who is he talking to? So for some of you, this might be a simple question. There's kind of two sides to this. Some people would say he's only talking to the leaders of the church. The onus right here is on the authority of the elders of the church, right? Speaking to the apostles as the figurehead. Some people would say, no, he's uh, clearly speaking to his disciples. This is every believer is called to go and do this. But I would say, wherever you find yourself in that spectrum, whatever you believe about that, there, there's still something we can agree on. And that's this, okay? That... The goal of the church is to make disciples of every nation and people, and every single member of the church of Christ plays a vital role in that happening, okay? We can all agree on that, no matter where you fall on the spectrum. The command is simple. It is to go and make disciples of every nation, and who is that for? It is for all believers. Now, there are definitely some implications about, you know, the nuances of that, but nonetheless, it's for all of us to do, right? It's, it's the, the task that we've been given. King Jesus stands up and says, look, I am building my kingdom here on earth. It's my heavenly kingdom. And I am going to use you, my ambassadors, to advance that building. And so go, therefore, and do as I've asked you to do. Do what I've commanded you to do, and I will build my kingdom. This is what Christ is saying. So that's what's happening here. So no one gets out of this charge from King Jesus, okay? No one gets to escape this. You are a missionary, whether you live in a foreign country or here. You are a soldier in the army of God for the battle of the souls of men, okay? Now, I need to mention 
also that everyone is gifted differently and everyone plays a different role in this, okay? And I, I don't want to get too nuanced here, but i got to mention this. So let's, let's name a few things I'm not talking about here when I talk about you have to make disciples, okay? Not every believer is going to move their family across the globe. This is true, although I pray many of us do. Not everyone's going to do that. Not every believer is going to become a pastor at their church, serve as an elder, serve as a deacon. Not every believer is going to be a gifted evangelist or preacher or be really good at explaining the gospel. And I could go on and on and on about listing more things, okay? But there are some things that every believer is going to experience. And here's what they are. Every believer will experience the life-changing power of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a given. Now, if you are a believer, that's what it means, right? You experience the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every believer will be compelled to share that life-changing love with the lost and dying world, and every believer will take part in teaching others how to obey the commands of Christ. There's no escaping this. Every believer is going to do this. It is going to look significantly different from one life to the next, but everyone is going to do it. So let's put some flesh on this. How do we do this, okay? In the original language, you kind of got like the imperative, and then you also got like some, you know, kind of Things underlining that. So it's all about making disciples. That's the imperative here. But there's three things about making disciples that he mentions. It's very simple. It's going, baptizing, and teaching. So we have to go to make the disciples. We have to baptize to make the disciples. And we have to teach to make the disciples. So let's go through this really quick. Um, one is go. We have to go. Okay, I'm not hating on modern evangelism. But here is one thing I would say. The point of the Sunday morning gathering of the saints that we are participating in right now, that we come every Sunday for, the main goal of this gathering is not to evangelize the world. It's not. That's the purpose of the church, but it's not what we're doing when we gather here. Now, we do pray every Sunday, God, let non-believers come in. I pray they come in by the droves. I pray they hear the gospel. I pray they repent. I pray they believe. That's not a bad thing. But it's not the main thing we're doing right here. The main thing we're doing right here is being equipped for the work of ministry. We're coming in and we are encouraging one another in the hope of the gospel. In all of our sorrow, all of our despair, all the craziness of the world, we are saying we have a hope in eternity. Right? We have a hope in eternity. We are encouraging one another. That's why we're singing as loud as we can right next to the person, whether it's annoying or not, because we are encouraging one another. We believe this. Right? It's real. We trust in the Lord. We're doing this together. The reason I bring that up, the only reason I bring that up is because our evangelism can't just simply be, I invite them to go to the church, right? It's got to be that we are aimed outwardly to say, you know, our, our ideal is to, is to go. It's to go get people. It's, it's to preach the gospel to them. It's to, to show them the love of Christ and all the ways that we find ourselves to do that. And that's an important aspect of what it means to make disciples. And, and just as a side note too, it says the nations. This isn't quite referring to like a map of all the evenly drawn out nations that we have. This simply means all the peoples, all the ethnicities, all the people groups go and make disciples of all the people groups. And so it would behoove me to mention that God is a global God, okay? God's mentality when he gives us, it, it's, it's a global focus. Now, I want to mention two arguments here that I think are both silly, okay? One argument says that foreign missions is really the bread and butter of what we do. If you stay here in a local American suburb, you're basically wasting your life and you're not a true missionary and you're probably not going to do, you're not going to get a big reward in the kingdom, but it's cool, you know, whatever. They're going to go out and do that. That's one side of the argument which says it's all about foreign missions. The other side of the argument says, 
oh, well, why do we care about all these foreign nations? We've got a lot to worry about here. There's so many people that are lost and dying here. Why do we spend all this money and all these resources to go to the nations? I just want to say, both of these are totally missing the point. God is not centered on a country. God is global, right? God is, is in heaven, and he, he does whatever he pleases in the world, right? He is a global God, and so for us, it, it matters that we have a global focus. Our heart should bleed for all the nations, okay? That really matters. When we see that there are unreached people group, we should be involved in that somehow and going to reach those people. When we see we have neighbors in the suburbs that are, you know, on drugs and, and need the gospel, our hearts should bleed for that. There's no distinction here. Now, now, each one of us will have a distinction on maybe what God really presses on our heart. I believe that. I believe some people, it's like, if I don't go to this certain country, like, I just would, would feel unsatisfied, right? I would feel like I wasn't doing anything in my life. Not everyone's going to feel that way. But my whole point in all this, I'm getting into the weeds here, is that it's all nations. Our focus is God let all the world be saved. That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. And our focus may be a little bit different for each person, but by and large, we all long for that. We all participate in the, the gospel going to the nations, and it's, it's what we want to see. So you go. Second is you baptize. Well, what does this mean when it says baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? You may believe different things on baptism. There's, there's, there's a few different theologies on baptism, but we can all agree that nonetheless, this command is to go and to preach the gospel that people might repent and be saved. What is baptism? Baptism is the first command. Every time you see someone that says, like, I'm convicted, what do I do about the word, or what do I do about this message of the gospel? Want to be Peter or someone else will stand up and they'll say, repent and be baptized. That's it. Repent of your sins, come to Christ, be baptized. It's the, the first command that we step into obedience to as we believe. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we go and we preach Christ. We bid people come, come to the Lord, come, be saved. This is what he means when he says, go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This also implies to you, I love that he mentions this. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in submission to the Godhead and his authority, right? It's in submission to the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit that we are baptized in, right? It's the the image of baptism is we are dead in Christ, right? We we died in Christ. We are raised in newness of life in him, and we are submitting. He is my Lord. He is God. He is everything, right? So it's the submitting to them. So he says, you're doing that. You're baptizing them. So I just want to mention, um, basically in summary, that it, it's it's a saving work that's happening. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because there have been a lot of movements, a lot of awesome missions movement and different things throughout history where people have, you know, gone and they've evangelized so well. They preach the gospel in such great words. So many people repent. They come to Christ. And then the guy's like, See ya, and then he leaves, and there's no church body to get plugged into. There's no teaching them to observe all that he's commanded. There's no discipleship happening. And so you got these baby Christians running around with no guidance at all, and it leads to this lack of discipleship, right? And that's not a good thing. And so Jesus says, not only are we baptizing them and just leaving them to, you know, fly around this earth and figure it out, we are teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So discipleship does not simply mean preaching the message of Jesus in the gospel. It means teaching. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Okay, you're probably thinking, well, what if I'm not a gifted teacher, right? Like that stuff, that's like for the Providence Road Academy, okay? That's not like for me, you know, 
a lot of times we think of discipleship, we think of like a Jen Wilkins, you know, Bible study in a coffee shop, okay? And that's not necessarily a bad thing in your process of discipleship, but that's not quite exactly what I think Christ is implying here. Now, remember, we talked about this is an onus on the church. I do think the church will be accountable. The church should be teaching all of the commands of Christ faithfully from the pulpit and other avenues. But how do we participate in teaching if we're not a teacher? If we don't have the gift of teaching, like, how do we do that? That's an important question we got to ask, because if not, we're just going to leave here, once again, feeling guilty that we're not a good teacher, and then we're just not going to do it, right? But how do we participate in this? Well, there's a few things that, it, that I think Christ implies when he says teaching. One, he implies that there's going to be hearing of the word, right? You can't get around this. This is the word of God. The apostles, um, you know, they, they were kind of the authority of the word of God, and that's why they were writing scripture and things like that. But now we have the Bible. We have everything that Jesus taught. It's right here. It's right here. Everything he demands from the believers. And so, there's a hearing of the word. There's a teaching of the word, sure. There's a modeling of the word. There's a being doers of the word. And not only that, but there's also a call from one believer to the other that says, do that, right? There's got to be a call that says, you've got to do this. You can't just hear it and think, that's awesome. You've got to do something about it, right? And so, we cannot belittle the fact that the way we live together as believers, the way we encourage one another, the way we just do life together, the way we come in on a Sunday morning or we enter our home groups and we just say, God, I just want to encourage people. Just help us, Lord. We cannot undercut that. This is what teaching is. Look at me. When we gather together faithfully, okay, to hear the word and to do what it says, when we gather together faithfully to acknowledge our sin and trust in Christ, here's what's happening. We show each other how to pray. We show each other how to repent We show each other how to study and treasure the word of God. We show each other how to obey the commands of the Lord. And we show each other how to live with hope in all circumstances, right? That's what we're doing together as the believers. So when he says teach them to observe all the commands, this is a community project, okay? Yes, there's an onus on the um, elders of the church to be teaching the word of God faithfully. But underneath that, how how, how do we teach the world to observe everything we command? We We live life together. We struggle together as Christians to have faith in the Lord. We fight together. It's the whole point of Ephesians 4. Go and read that later. It's saying that there's mutual encouragement that happens. And I don't, I don't care if, if you got no gifts for teaching. Look, some of you have gifts of hospitality, and you're just going to be hospitable to sinners, and you're going to figure it out, and that's how you're going to make disciples, right? Some of you might have a gift of other stuff. I can go down the list of all the gifts. Some of you might be gifted teachers. Some of you might be gifted at who knows what. You know, Maybe you're just gifted at sitting in awkward silences. That is a skill, okay? It's not a spiritual gift listed in the Bible, but it is there. You might have all kinds of gifts, right? Whatever it may be, you can and will be used by God. So we believe as the church that God has called us to make disciples of the nations. And we play a vital role in doing that together. And it's important. Okay, that's, that's kind of the how. So he gives us the claim, which is the basis of authority for what he's about to charge us to do. We have a charge which is go make disciples of all the nations that all the church is involved in. And then now we have the comfort. And the comfort is that we believe that Christ is with us. We believe that Christ is with us. So how do we have confidence that we can complete this mission? As ambassadors of Christ, how do we have confidence? It's that Christ is with us, right? He's with us. Look, let's just go down a few things. He is with us as a friend, right? We, we mentioned, it, uh, you're my friend if you do what I say. That's what Jesus said. He's with us as a friend. 
He's with us as a very present help in time of need. He is with us as the commander-in-chief leading his army. He is with us as the light that overcomes all darkness. He is with us as a patient savior that is willing to use broken vessels like us. He is with us. This is amazing. Christ says, let me read the text. I'm sorry. Let's read the text. And Christ says it better. He says this in the back half of verse 20. And behold, listen, I am with you always to the end of the age, all time, forever. I am with you. So we believe that Christ is with us. This encourages us in so many ways and should in so many ways. I want to mention two as we close out here. This this encourages us. The first one is because Christ is with us, he shares his heart with us. This is so important, especially for those of us in here who struggle to really feel a zeal about the mission of the Lord, okay? If you feel apathy about what you're doing, just remember Christ with us means he shares his heart with us. I love the heart of Christ. Read the Gospels. I love the image of Jesus coming over uh, the the hill, ascending down into Jerusalem and just weeping over the children of Israel, saying, oh, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under my wings and you wouldn't come, right? He's crying. Christ has a heart for the world. And as we are with Christ, as we are with him, that was not for a dramatic effect, I apologize, my hand just got there, okay. He is with us and he shares his heart with us. Our heart bleeds for what Christ's heart bleeds for. Christ longs for the nations to be saved. He is drawing all men unto himself and we long to do the very same thing. We long to participate in that mission. We do. And the the more we spend time in Christ's presence, the more we desire that. The more that we realize Christ is very present. He's with us even when we don't feel it, the more we can begin to walk as children of God in that way. And number two, it reminds us that the success of the mission does not depend on us. We have to believe this. If we believe for a second that the success of the mission of God depends on our ability to evangelize, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. Some of you may be very gifted at what you do, but you are not good enough to save the world. That should be clear from the scriptures, from your own heart, from your own, you know, attempts to try to do it, right? You cannot do it. The success does not lie on us. It's on Jesus. Remember, Jesus is building his church. He will do it. He will see it to completion. The task will be done. No one can hinder it. It is going to happen. The success of the mission of God, I want to relieve you from this burden. This is why Paul says, look, some water, okay, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. Nothing is going to happen unless God makes it happen. And no one is going to be saved unless God makes it happen. The sovereign over the hearts of men, we need him, okay? And so I pray this relieves you from any feelings of this burden that says, my gosh, the task is impossible. It is impossible. How are we to take the gospel to a nation that's hostile towards Christianity? In our own culture, I mean, you're looking around. How are we going to bring the gospel to bear weight on some of the things that are being believed in our society? It's impossible without the Lord. When you pray for people to be saved, your friends, your family, your coworkers, you say, Lord, I want to witness them. I don't know how. Look, it's just a, it's just a leaning on him. None of us know how. That's the point. We don't know what we're doing. I mean, we got, we got some methods. You know, God has been gracious to us in his word to show us how we share the gospel. But. And so I want to conclude with this. I hope the claim 
the charge and the comfort are encouraging to you. But I, I want to remind us that sh- sharing the gospel, we we got we to simplify this, okay? We make it very complicated. We make it very tough for us. We make it very confusing. We make it very scary. And it, yes, it is all of those things in the context. But the gospel, sharing the gospel is simply having a life changed by the gospel and sharing that with others. That's it. Uh, th- this past week, it was actually funny because I was you know, going to be speaking on this, and I was having a conversation with a, a gentleman who is, um, he's at a, a church in the, the Fifth Ward there downtown. He kind of leads their mission stuff, and he's got a pretty radical story. God really changed his life in some amazing ways, and, and he was just talking to a few of us about like how that happened, and he's just rem- reminiscing on, on the moment this happened, right, where God really rescued him, and he was talking about just the ecstatic joy that he experienced in the presence of the Lord was like anything he's ever felt before. And he's not constantly feeling that, right? It's a struggle to feel joy in the Lord many times. But that, that moment he remembered with such, you know, vivid detail of the joy that was in the Lord. He said, man, if heaven's like that, like that moment, if that's what heaven's like, then why wouldn't I want to share that with others? And I remember thinking, man, that is the essence. That is what it means to share the gospel. I have had those moments where I felt such joy, such forgiveness in the Lord, such Grace upon grace upon grace bestowed upon me such amazing amazement and awe at who God is for me, right? And you've experienced that joy. And it may not be your constant thing, but you've experienced it. And the point is that we want to share that joy with others. Our motivation has to be the motivation of Christ, which he did for the joy that was set before him, right? All heaven rejoices with a party when one sinner repents. This is amazing. And so I want to leave you with a quote by C.T. Studd. He um, wrote poetry. Um, he was a great poet. You know, only one life will soon be passed. Everyone has to read that at least once in their Christian life. But he was also, I think he was a rugby player. Some of them might know this. He was soccer or rugby. One of the sports that us Americans don't care about. Okay. Um, and if you like soccer, that's cool. I like soccer too. But by and large, Americans like whatever. He was very famous. He was this young athlete, a star of his generation. He was super popular in England. Had all the world at his fingertips. Was super handsome, good looking, all these things. He had the last name Stud. I mean, you can't go wrong with the last name Stud, okay? And he concluded this. He said, I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. I do not suppose there is one that I have not experienced, but... I can tell you that those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the saving of that one soul gave me. I love this line because it gives us our disposition. Our disposition does not have to be, I'm going to be the world's greatest preacher, the most eloquent speaker, the best apologist and evangelist. Our disposition is, I want people to know Christ. And whatever meager gifts the Lord has given me, I want to use them to that end. It's just an ori- a reorientation of our lives and what matters. Look, I'm not, I don't want us to be those people that just feel like we, we can't be accountants because that wouldn't be doing anything for the Lord. You can be an accountant and do things for the Lord, okay? You could do whatever it is that you're doing and where you're at right in your circumstance with all of your struggles and all of your pains and all of your confusion and all of your failures. And you could have this heart, which is Christ's heart, that says, go to the world, make disciples save people. So 
my prayer this morning is that we just we would have that vision. We would have that heart that Christ would just graciously with his presence remind us of all the goodness we have in the gospel and that that would compel us not to be guilt-driven to go out there and, and you know do all these things that we don't feel like doing, but rather just to look upon the souls of men and say, I want them to be saved. I want them to know my Jesus. And that's a good thing. We're going to pray for